Are you underutilizing one of the most powerful restaurant marketing tools on the planet? What do 92 million monthly Yelp searchers see when they land on your page? Is your content accurate and attention grabbing? Are you using every conversion tool possible to set yourself apart? Yelp is here to help. Go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to sign up for a one-on-one with a specialist that will review your Yelp page and share tips to help you stand out. Again, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash profile to supercharge your Yelp page today. Now here we go. It is not to search for the newest, hottest, shiniest penny. It's not to listen to all the industry chatter. It's to go out there and figure out in the niche in which you compete, what matters most to your guests. It's to make sure that you actually know BS delivering that in a real way. The world doesn't need another restaurant. It needs a restaurant that does a better job at something for that guest. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. What does success look like in the restaurant industry? For Ron Shake, it meant driving Panera Bread to outperform both Starbucks and Chipotle over the last 20 years, ultimately selling the company for $7.5 billion. How did he do it? The answer was surprisingly simple, and today he takes us on the journey from a single-unit cookie company to a billion-dollar brand. Nice of you to say I've lived a life of intention, and I believe that, and that's where I've come from. But I believe that actually a better model than simply intention is probably what I would refer to as body surfing, which is to say, metaphorically, you're out in the ocean. You're body surfing, you choose a wave, that's a choice, you set an intention, the beach, and then you go with the wave and it takes you where it takes you. And then you go back and reset it again. So my point is, I hope I've lived a life of intention. I've thought about intention, but the reality is that we have to be conscious that the wave takes us where it takes us, and then we continue to reset and redefine our intentionality. Did you have a vision though? I mean, did you know where you wanted to land? No, I think if you're too precise, you never get there. So no, I didn't like say I'm going to grow up and have the 10th largest restaurant chain in America and complete the largest U.S. restaurant deal ever done at the second highest multiples and then create Act 3. No, what I set out to do was to create a business I wanted to work in, to do something I was proud of, to build something of substance. I like figuring things out and I really set out to figure it out. And I feel like I've figured out a whole ton and it feels good. Yeah, I like to figure things out myself. And when I look at Panera, I see great service, consistent food with like a clean and organized operation. But I would also argue that restaurants just like that go out of business every single day. What were the internal drivers that you think led to scaling that business to $7.5 billion? Well, what makes Panera is not simply that we have good food and good hospitality. That's not what drives consumer choice. What drives consumer choice is being a better alternative for your target consumer, period. And when you do that, you have value creation. Can you unpack that for me a bit? Sure. I'll share with you by way of a story, and then we'll come back to why Panera succeeded. I have a friend who's a type 1 diabetic. His intent in life 
is to stay alive as long as you and I, Josh. But he can't make that happen. It's a byproduct. What's his end? Keeping his insulin between 80 and 180. If he does that, he knows the byproduct will be life. So his end is insulin control. His means, diet and exercise and management of his insulin. Business is the same thing. Value creation, having something of value, making money, whatever you want to say, is not something you do. It comes out the other end. What do you focus on? What is the end? Being the best choice, legitimately the best choice for your target consumer. What does that mean? That your consumer knows you exist, knows why you exist, and walks past your competitors or other alternatives to get to you. It isn't more complicated than that. The means to that are where we spend our time. It's the range of things I did as a CEO for 37 years. It's around issues of making sure we have the right authority, the right food, environments that engage you, people that care, growth plans that can work. And there's a better way and a worse way to do it. And we at Act 3 have a growth plan. I have a game book, a game plan to do just that. So would you say that is a replicatable model, that there is a formula? I don't say a formula, but there's an attitude and a perspective. We are involved in six different growth companies, and we are applying common principles to all of them. It's not like you do this and then that, but it's the way you think. The most important thing I would share with you is what you and I are talking about right now. Most investors start with value creation as the end, and let's figure out how we can make this more valuable and basically find an inflection point and get out. We never start there. Right? We start with what's the niche you're in? Who has authority and why should we have authority? We need to talk about that for a second. Right? Authority is who do I recognize as the expert at that? And I'll talk about some of our businesses in a second. And then we've got to execute that in a way that continues to make that a better alternative. When we do that, we take market share. We have comps. We have units that have high sales and high ROI and growth makes sense. And then we grow them. And then there's a whole discipline to growing. You've got to stay intensely focused on making sure that you have the right resources at the right time and the right capabilities, and you have the right capital structure to get there. And we do that. And so in Act 3, our model is not venture capital. Our model is that we call Sherpa management. I don't know, probably 20 people on the team. Everyone has been in a C-suite role or has done it. There is only one sort of financial person in the whole crowd. And we like to think of himself as a reformed activist. <laughs> and our whole approach is, how do we help the entrepreneur, the founder, the CEO, really think about, discover today what's going to matter tomorrow? How do we help them think about having the right resources and teams in place to do that? I mean, we have teams that can deal with technology, concept services, off-premises. I've got experts in all these areas who I've known for 20 or 25 years that are partners with us. And we're able to, on any investment we, we make, come in and help them think about that and actually provide services if they want. I'll tell you two things. And it's how I think about investing and this whole issue of where you compete. I was speaking in Vegas maybe a year and a half ago, and I walked through the casino. And I got there about 11 p.m. And as I walked through that casino, I saw people dropping $5 chips into the slot machine. And I thought to myself, I would never be in a casino at 11 o'clock at night because over time, the more you spend, you don't win. The only way I'd ever be in that casino at 11 p.m. is if I owned the casino and had the house vigorous. It's the same way when you invest into growth as opposed to against growth. 
I can tell you that the wind is at our back in each of these segments. I don't need to tell you plan forward, Mediterranean, Israeli cafe, uh, platform-based agriculture, unified commerce and technology for restaurants. These are all growth segments. And the good news is I and our, my partners, we know how to help these guys accomplish their mission. And that's what Act 3 is about. Three principles. We don't invest where we don't know something. Secondly, we apply these skills of Sherpa management. We sit in the board and generally we're saying, make that investment or this is where you need discipline. And we try to help them take the things that have big cost and scale and big risk and reduce that. And then the third principle for us is founder-friendly capital. We look at some of these investments. For too many people, I don't know if you experienced it, but they have something that's interesting. It's a growth concept. The first thing they begin to believe is they got to raise money. It's like a life cycle event every year. Got to raise money, my Series A, my Series B. We think that that's highly defocusing for management, a waste of energy and time, and it removes them from the thing that matters, being a better alternative in their niche. And so we came up with this concept of what we would have wanted, founder-friendly money. That means that we go in, we don't do what are called prefs and anti-dilute clauses, which basically says that if the stock price doesn't go up, the last round of shareholders get the lower price. We go in with common stock like everybody else, and then we pre-negotiate if there are any other follow-on rounds of capital. We have a right to take that follow-on round at a pre-agreed-to multiple. In our history, we've never not taken that agreed-to round. Therefore, the people running our businesses never, ever have to worry about raising money again. And we're in that room with them. It's an easy process. We become the bank. And so our whole mission is to focus on being a better alternative. You don't make money through financial engineering. You do well by creating better alternatives in segments of the market that are growing and are strong. It totally makes sense. I want to dig into the Sherpa management because I'm sure that over the last 15 months, the founders, the operators that you've been working with could use focus. I've heard you say that, you know, we live in this short term society where investments that used to last eight years or 80 years last eight months and that the attention span of most operators and investors are short term as well because of it. And I'm curious to know. Over the last 15 months, as you guys have executed this Sherpa management, has it been all about long-term thinking? It's only long-term. You have to deliver in the short term. You make decisions in the short term, but all value is developed over the long term. The strength of Panera, going back to that, was we transformed that company four times in 37 years. Each one was a transformation that took us five to 10 years. Right? That ability to know what's going to matter is key. I want to share with you a process I use about what matters. We often, in our lives, in our businesses, we get enamored by the shiny penny, and we chase that. That's how you destroy a life. That's how you destroy business. What matters is to figure out what will matter in the future. So one of the processes we take our people through is we sit down and we write the Wall Street Journal article or the Restaurant News article three years from now. Blankety blank had a phenomenal three-year run. What were the five things in that article that they did? And we really try to get ourselves into the future and we go from future back. I personally have been doing this now 25, 30 years. It really comes from, the, from watching my mom and dad pass away and some decisions I made. My mom passed away 29 years to the day yesterday. I watched her go through that process and I watched her 
very quickly reflect on her life as she was ill. And I watched my dad go through that like six, seven years after she did. And in that review of their lives, say, I wish I had done this, but I feel good about that. And I said to myself, watching them both in the ninth inning of their lives, I said, you know, what I want to do is start to have that, what I call post-mortem. I want to do a pre-mortem and I want to do it in the fourth inning, in the fifth and the sixth. I want to do it as I'm going through it, not just at the end. It led me to beginning a process that I did for my own life. I'd come down to a home I had in the Caribbean and I would sit there Christmas time every year, take a couple of days and ask myself, where do I want to be? And what am I going to respect in relationship to my health and my body? Where am I going to be and what am I going to respect in the context of my relationships, my marriage, my kids, my friendships? And what am I going to respect in my work and how I spend my time? And then lastly, what am I going to respect relative to my spirituality? And I would literally write that down. And then I would write a set of projects to get me there. So if that was a three-year ambition, what do I have to get done this quarter, next quarter? Then I'd sit down every quarter and review where I'm at. I still do that. And I found it so powerful in terms of figuring out what matters. I apply that to business. And every company we've been in has a vision of how they're going to compete, has a vision of where they have authority. Those are the things that matter. And then goes through a process of developing what we call their key initiatives. Where do they want to be in terms of things that are going to define how they compete? And what are the central projects they got to do to get there? But we want to really focus on the projects that will lead to accomplishing the initiatives that we believe that in three years will create something that we really respect. And that's always rooted in being a better competitive alternative. It's so interesting that that's how you present the argument, because this really isn't a thinking industry. It's a doing industry. Josh, Josh, yes. you got yes. it wrong. Buddy. Yes. Let me tell you something, okay? This business, and I speak as somebody who spent my life in it, is not complicated. It's just a bitch to do. And you better know what you're doing and how you're spending your time. It isn't about just working harder. It isn't about doing what the other guy's doing. It's about figuring out, it's a consumer business. It's a almost a fashion business with fixed assets. You better figure out what's gonna matter in three years and five, or you're wasting your time. This is dirt farming. If you don't have a better competitive alternative and you're not taking market share. And so don't tell me this is just about working hard. You better figure out what you're working on and what's gonna matter. And by the way, don't take my advice relative to business. You know the answer for your own life, right? Where's your life going to be in three years and five and 10? What are you going to respect? That's the stuff you should work on. What's going to matter? And you better make sure that stuff gets done. I think you bring up a really relevant point. And I think that the pandemic gave us that opportunity to stop and think. And I would also argue that there was a labor crisis in this industry long before the pandemic started. It does seem like we are at a crossroads as an industry. I think that when we look at luring talent back, when we look at compelling people to enter into the industry from a labor perspective, that we have to offer something better than a gig. I buy that, but I've always bought that. So what I'm saying is when we talk about what matters, it's not new. I'm going to share with you a perspective. The restaurant industry is the second oldest profession in the world. In the end, it's about figuring out how to attract people not employees yet, but customers. And in order to have customers, you better have people that care, environments that engage them. You better have a level of expertise, a reason they're going to choose you. You better do something for them. That's been it forever. 
And when we were in the middle of COVID and I would be on these panels and be speaking, everybody's talking about delivery. And I would say, look, this was my bet. And we made major investment. We bought a major position in BJ's, which were one of my partners around the board of another company we're invested in. We bought it, I think, at $18 a share. We brought in T. Rowe Price's partners. What did we bet on? We bet on 22, essentially the same as 19. 2022 is the same as 19. That's what we underwrote on. And by 21, we already could see that happen. That's why the stock is up. And that's why we took warrants to be able to help because we're in the board, we're helping them. And so it's like for us, like almost a nine bagger, but nine times investment. But what is my point? I'd sit on these panels and everybody was talking about, oh, delivery this and digital that. My answer to is, hey, this too will pass and the new normal will be a little different, but not all that different than the old normal. People are still going to want to eat in. They're still going to want social experiences. They're still going to want a quick way to get their food if they want to take it to go. And, you know, some people may use delivery if it works for them. And we see now, just as I predicted, the cafes that are filled up, people want that social experience no matter what. Delta variants and everything, variant and everything, they're out there. They're not stopping. And so my whole argument is not that we be reactive, but we respond to the longer and deeper underlying trends. If I could give any piece of advice to the folks listening, it is not to search for the newest, hottest, shiniest penny. It's not to listen to all the industry chatter. It's to go out there and figure out in the niche in which you compete, what matters most to your guests. It's to make sure that you actually know BS delivering that in a real way. The world doesn't need another restaurant. It needs a restaurant that does a better job at something for that guest. And to me, the job of a restaurant leader is listening and separating the wheat from the chatter and knowing what's going to matter in two years and five and making sure that in the broadest sense of that, you're able to deliver that to your guests. Wise words. I am super curious to know, has mentorship played a role in your career? Who are the guiding forces in your life? I was just saying this. I've never had one. Really? Yeah. I'd love somebody to take care of me. I actually think most of what I've learned is not by having a mentor as much as taking time and trying to figure out what the generalizations are. We're given credit, myself among others, for the development of fast casual. But one of the central transformations, 1993, we had just bought something called the St. Louis Bread Company, and I could feel Panera getting pedestrianized, and I could feel something afoot in the country. We got on the road and we spent a year on the West Coast really listening. And what we began to conclude was there was a niche in the marketplace, about one out of every three people for whom at that time the choices were fine dining and fast food, who really wanted more than a lot of food for not a lot of money. And they felt that in some ways fast food was depleting, not energizing. And fine dining took too much time. And we began to say, could we change the currencies? Could we give them real food? And ultimately, could we sell them something that brought them up and something that elevated them as opposed to diminish them? And I think this became for us fast casual. And it was very clear. And I looked for the generalization. And I began to realize that fast food was revolutionary in 1950s. But by the early 90s, it was the essence of basically nutritional gas stations. They were places you filled up through the drive through and you hit the drive through for nutritional cocaine. And it was very clear that what had once been special and differentiated fast food 
had become commercial and commodified and processed. And we began to say, just as there had been the emergence of specialty beer, the Sam Adams, your local craft beer, the reaction to Anheuser-Busch and Miller, which was both market share driven businesses, just as we saw it in the coffee business, which the dominant forces were Maxwell House and Folger, and that yielded to specialty coffee, just as we saw it in the beverage business, Coke and Pepsi yielded to Snapple and Owaldo. We knew the same thing was going to happen in bakery that once been very special. It had morphed into three loaves for 99 cents at Kroger, frozen bread, and that there was a desire and a reawakening for specialty product. And we saw the same thing in the food industry. And so we put together specialty bread with specialty food. And that in its core was the beginning of fast casual. And we did it. Steve Ells came along later and did it at Chipotle. Howard Schultz did it up at Starbucks. And today that's a $60 billion category. But I look for the generalization. I'm trying to figure out what's the generalization and what's going to matter. And often the best way to learn that is not by copying competitors, but by looking at other businesses and trying to figure it out. In 2011 and 12, I did it again when we transformed Panera. The trick is figuring out what's going to matter tomorrow. And that's really what it's about. And so every one of those transformations was about not the doing, but the learning from the opportunity for bakery cafe, from the opportunity for fast casual from the opportunity to make Panera happen and grow from 200 to 2,500 restaurants, from the opportunity to use digital and clean food and omnichannel, they're all learnings and then commitment and then execution. And that's what the story of what we've done. And what we're doing today is doing that writ large with six or seven or eight businesses. We're finding specialty niches. That's where we think the world will go that are going to be powerful. We know what niche we want to be in. And then we find the best concept we can, of people that have the potential to dominate it. And then we do everything we can with our knowledge and experience to help them get there and to think about how to actually ensure that they really are a better alternative. And then value creation takes care of itself. It's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. We have thousands of restaurant owners and operators listening. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Stay focused on what matters to your long-term success. If you haven't heard anything in this conversation, I hope you've heard that. Know what's going to matter and stay focused on getting those things done. Ignore all the shiny pennies. Ignore what your competitor is doing. Know why your customers are seeking you out and be the best alternative for that. It's worked forever. It will continue to work. Good luck to all of your listeners. That's Ron Shake. For more on Ron and his company, go to ronshake.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.